Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Two Trees Podcast. I'm John Dillon, and I'm here with someone you're not expecting. I'm here with Mike Chu from the Awakening School of Theology. Uh, most of you guys are super familiar with them because of Mike Heiser, and uh, Mike has a, a deep relationship uh, that goes back and has been influenced by Dr. Heiser over the years. But uh, allow us just to take a minute and say, uh, welcome, Mike. We're so glad to have you here on the Two Trees. Thanks, John. Thanks for inviting me for this little interview and just chat together. No, I've been enjoying We've been talking off the air. This part of the fun of actually getting to host the podcast is I get to talk about whatever I want. Uh, and Mike's been talking to me about his story coming to Jesus and, and about how the Lord just really gripped him and made made his uh, relationship with him for real. Now, you grew up in Pennsylvania, no, Massachusetts, right? That's your way up there. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm way up there. I'm I'm in the. I actually was born in Boston, so I'm I'm a native, born and bred Bostonian. Whoa. Uh, yeah. So, Boston so, sports. That's pretty much there. Red Sox, Patriots. Uh, <laughs> you know, man. The Celtics. Unfortunately, we didn't win yesterday. So that's, that's okay. We were all rooting for you. It was okay, but uh, no, you weren't. Um, I got a buddy in here. He's shaking his head no, but he's he's barely, you know of an opinion. No, he has loads of us. Martin Listener is a good friend of mine, and he knows more about sports than I'm ever going to. But uh, so if I was going to Boston, Mike, where, what's the, what's the first place to eat? Where's the go-to place to eat? Well, if, if this is the first time you're ever visiting. Ever there. I've never been there before. I want a taste of Boston. Where are you sending me? Well, then in that case, as a brand new visitor to Boston, I would probably send you over to at least legal seafood i would have you go and yeah. check out our actual actual famous dish of like you know boston clam chowder yeah and just i know the new yorkers will say that they have the best clam chowder but also i think boston still has the best ours is creamy ours does not have some other weird ingredients and it does have clams um clams and so that's clam what I would chowder? Probably, unbelievable yeah like actual good chunky bits of like clam that's inside I mean, so I'm here. I, the I rest myself, of the world like we, in, the, in the Midwest, we argue about barbecue, but you guys are oh, seafood yeah. people, and so I, I understand the the heart that's that's in there. But that that's the name. It was called Landmark. Uh, 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 legal seafood. Legal seafood. That's always a positive. You, you know, you're like, you know, is this good? It's got to be. It's legal. This is the this is the stuff. Yeah, uh, and actually, that's kind of the part of their whole entire like um, pitch is that at least they can guarantee to you that none of this is fishy. Yeah, yeah that harvested was, that it. fishy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, you are now work. You just graduated. You had a birthday. You've been seriously just enjoying yourself the last couple of days as really celebrations and things. How does it come? How does it feel to be a graduate? Are, did are you infused with? extra knowledge and wisdom when they hand you your diploma is that how it works no no but uh, i i will say as a graduate at uh gordon conwell and specifically i i graduated from the boston campus and if anything about it i came away from that campus with a faith that has been like bolstered from mm. the last five years um i mean the behind her beginning of my seminary journey with Gordon and especially with the Boston campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started with my wife's cancer at the same time. Cool. And, you know, just 
I, I've said this to my wife several times these these last few weeks, and the more I reflect on it, that I know folks will say, and even times Mike and I have talked about, is seminary useful or not? Is it MDiv good or not? But I will say, at least from my experience, that the five years at Gordon, and especially with the Boston campus, mm -hmm. the professors, the other students that I got to be with, I don't know where my faith would be if it wasn't that I was also still doing school at the same time. Mm. You know, as stressful as surgeries, chemo, the side effects of chemo, all the craziness that happens when all that just kind of hits the fan. Mm. I know that it's not everyone's story. I know that this is not the typical thing that could happen, but being at that school and with professors who opened up and shared their own medical pains as well, the things that they have gone through and that they could not only sympathize, but they could empathize with what me and my wife were enduring. Mm. That, that meant the world to me. Mm. And it's one of the reasons why I was so proud and actually really proud to be a Gordon Convo grad, not be just because of the knowledge and everything else like that. That itself is is a given in a sense because of what we have to do in order to get this degree. Sure. But the very fact that I could honestly say these professors and the staff were servants, they wanted to love and serve us as students. I I cannot put a, a price tag on that. Mm. Well, you can't get. I, I needed a, that more than I realized. Uh, you can't get a much better recommendation than that. So, Gordon Conwell, go ahead and refund this man his money because he is going to be a great <laughs> spokesman for you and your ministry out there. Uh, the uh, now you're you're not at Gordon Conwell now. You're you, are you still wearing the hood like your graduation robes? Do you just find yourself at Wendy's or something like that, fully clad in your academic regalia? Oh no no no! Once. Uh... <laughs> Once we were done with the photos, um, I, I took that off just because that thing is made out of polyester, I think. It, oh, was, uh, <laughs> it was a hot day. <laughs> well, that's a good reason. But if you ever, you know, just want to impress everybody, just go ahead and wander around. But now you are on staff yeah. at, at Awakenings, right? I am. I started about a month ago, actually, to come to think of it now. It's been over a month since I've started. Wow. Now, I have been... I started seminary in Charlotte. I was going to Southern Evangelical Seminary, Norm Geisler School, and uh, mm. went to school there quite a while. And uh, the bottom fell out of the economy, and I was working at a church plant there, and one thing led to another. And so I still have my master's degree kind of looming over me. Uh, but to just get away and go to seminary was is, is difficult for me. So when, when Dr. Heiser started talking about uh, his program that really was just something I could do at home. And, and I, I jumped on that man. And I was, I was really blessed by it. What, what, what has been your experience there with awakenings? And is that something that our listeners should look into? I definitely think that if, if a person is interested in digging deeper into biblical content, I think a, 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 an all digital theology school like awakening would be a great choice because it allows you to have access to actual good scholarship content. You get to interact with material that is from Dr. Heiser in particular, but also 
other scholars that he has worked with, that he has trusted. And I think just for the very fact that you get to interact with other students who are just as self-motivated to actually dig in, find out what does the actual text say? What is the actual cultural context of some of the things that we read in the scriptures? Mm. It's, it's a great opportunity. And the years that I've been able to help Dr. Heiser with this before becoming an academic director was just interacting with him through the live QAs that we had in the school. It was, it was really just a blessing to be able to interact with him and to really engage with the content from those courses and to kind of ask him a little bit more probing questions that sometimes he just doesn't have the time to dive into. Sure. And he was really good about that. I, I've kind of shared this before, but we had an instance at our church where I needed I needed godly advice. We were having a, an issue of uh, church discipline that was going on, and it, everything about it was uncomfortable for me. I don't like confrontation. I don't like anything like that. And so I wrote Dr. Heiser, and I figured my email would just sit in a file somewhere. He wrote me back like the next day with this long, I'm praying for you, here's my advice, here's some scriptures to read, go look at these books. And I'm just blown away by that. Like, even, like, what school does that? Where, you know, the someone's going to stop what they're doing and just email you back like that. He didn't know me from Adam. You know, I'm just a name on his computer page. But uh, it, it impacted me, and it, it, it really meant a lot to me to have somebody like that. You, know, he made, you guys made uh, the Q&As are always a lot of fun. But honestly, when I would take the courses, just the reading for the, the class was a ton of fun. Like he would, because we're mm-hmm. obviously interested in these topics anyway. And so he's, he, the, the, when you join the classes, they give you a link and there's all these articles and things you can read and they're fantastic. It's worth it just for access for those, let alone the teaching on top of it. I, I had a great experience with you guys. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. That is, that is one of the things that's, it is so interesting. I, Mike has said this so many times in the past that there, you know, he, he has said repeatedly, he is not really coming up with anything original. He's simply just diving into the content and material and research that has been available to people in general for the longest time, but they just don't even realize it exists, mm-hmm. that it's there. And he's simply just bringing them out into the open for folks to see and check out. Like, there is actual research. There is actual thought and work done in those questions that people may have asked. And so, I mean, that was just kind of one of the really coolest things I loved about Mike was that he didn't like to take credit for himself. He wanted to just simply point out, this scholar had done this. This person had talked about this before. Even listeners from the Naked Bible podcast or students from the school, they ask a certain question. And if it leads them on a rabbit trail, they'll eventually mention, yeah, I found this material because a person asked this question and just led me down this whole entire pathway. (laughs) So much fun. Uh, I mean, he came across like uh, like a real person, you know, other than, you know, I I mean, I assume you like the Red Sox and things like that too, but, you know, nobody's perfect. And at least you don't like the Yankees. Uh, But... No, I, I, I can't tell you how much Dr. Heiser influenced me. I, I read his book, uh, The Unseen Realm, and I w- somebody gave it to me, and I was sure it was wrong. And so I read it mm. again to prove it wrong and wound up agreeing with, like, everything he said. 
uh, I, I had to have a real hard reality check myself uh, because he was saying things that weren't in my notes from my undergrad. And I had to just really have some, some humbleness and eat some humble pie and say, you know what? I need to go think about a lot of things. And that's been one of the best things ever. It, it just has opened up so many new questions in my mind and just re-enchanted scripture to a large extent for me. And uh, so as somebody who is you know, still carrying on Dr. Heiser's work, we are really excited to have you here. We've been studying the topic of territorial spirits, Mike, but uh, you have mm-hmm. been uh, researching a little bit in Acts. And so would you mind just kind of talking to us about what's been on your mind lately? Well, I mean, because, again, because of the graduation, I had my mind was actually kind of thinking back over the years and, and how this all started. Mm-hmm. And the whole entire reason I even went to seminary was because I was inspired to actually give it a try after listening to Mike and reading his books. But it, I, I realized if I actually could understand like the material that was in unseen realm, if I could actually get excited about reading footnotes of all things, isn't that a weird um, feeling? Right. <laughs> You're like, it, it oh, really was. I now it, have to buy this also. My my wife has made me have a rule. I have to give away a book whenever I buy a book. And I'm not convinced that the footnote rule isn't a, a, an exception clause. Like, if it's referenced in this book, I think it should come with the book and not have to be uh, considered a new book. It's just like a further development of this book. And so I, I should get a free pass on those, I think. But my wife does not agree. But anyway, go ahead. You love the footnotes, and me too. Yeah, no, it, I, I just remembered there was one footnote where he, uh, in Unseen Realm, where Mike talked about were the giants or the nef- Nephilim, were they, were they people, were they human? And it was a whole entire footnote that was just dedicated to that question. And I loved it. I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so... Um, I think it, it was just such an interesting thing that, you know, I had always thought, should I go get training or not? Should I, should I not? And after, you know, just being exposed to Mike's content, that was what eventually just propelled me. All right, I'm going to get this a try. Let's see if I can actually do it. And, and so one of the first things, once I started getting into the languages, the I tackled Greek first and my first exegetical class was in the book of acts uh-huh. uh, with uh, dr ida spencer and so we were asked to just pick a passage that we wanted to study and i thought you know what i'm going to study acts 15. i'm going to study the the whole entire jerusalem council moment because this is a really big moment in the church it's the whole entire question about where do gentile christians fit in with with the body with the rest of the church mm-hmm. and you know arrogantly at that time i assumed what the answer already was and and i assumed what the weird things that james talks about in acts 15 i thought well i already got this because of, of a very famous bible teacher that i loved and respected you know he said it was this interpretation and so I just thought I'm just going to go down that pathway. This should be an easy paper to cover. Right. Um, and lo and behold, as I kept digging into the research, I realized um, this famous teacher who at times I even defended before some of my friends who were questioning 
some statements like unhitching ourselves from the Old Testament. Mm. And I thought, like, oh, we're, we're just kind of misunderstanding what he's saying. I heard him speak about it, it, it like at a conference, and it didn't sound that bad. Are we naming this but guy? But when I act, nope. Just, I just checking. Get in trouble. Okay. Because I'll name him if you want. No, but, just go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I mean, we're I like six months old and I, we have zero dollars invested in this. So if he sues us, he can have half of the zero. Well, I, 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 because I still, I still do respect him as an actual. No, no, I'm with teacher. you, dude. I'm just, just giving dis- you a hard time. One yeah, of the things I, I just disagree. No. And that's an important part of Christianity. And, and this was hard for me to learn is, is that I don't have to agree with you to learn from you. And there are loads of people who say things out there and, you know, I I may not think that they're right, but I need to be able to articulate what I think. And so I I have like, even like C.S. Lewis, like there's, there's no one who's affected me more than C.S. Lewis. And I don't agree with him on everything, but I'll tell you the fact Mm -hmm. that he talked about the things that he did has had a tremendous positive uplifting uh, impact on my life. And so when you find pastors that you disagree with, now obviously, it, I, and I know the person you're talking about, he's, he's a, a good and a godly man, and his, at least I think I do. I don't know, you didn't tell me, but, but I don't look at that as a threat. You know, it's, it's something to be learned from and to be as iron sharpens iron kind of a thing. Yeah, thank you. I, I just I don't want people agree. thinking I'm yeah. a jerk out here is really what I'm saying. You know, man, that guy's mean. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead, Mike. But other case, you know, I, I when I started digging into his particular, like he followed a particular interpretation model, and once I started researching that particular interpretation, because it was the same kind of interpretation that a lot of churches that I've attended, they would say, yeah, this is how we should look at Acts 15. Um, I realized if I wanted to defend this before my professor, this was the weakest interpretation to follow. Mm. Uh, that I knew that my professor would would rip my paper apart because if I even tried to defend this model because it really was not that defensible. And and because of being influenced by Heiser, I was looking at what James said in verse 19 to 21 with a little bit of now that divine counsel worldview. I was looking at those four things that he was talking about with a different lens. And right. I think that's ultimately why, why it led me to where I ended up with that interpretation. Um, so if, if you'll hear me, uh, I'll love to read Acts 15, verse 19 to 21, so the audience can know what, what I'm talking about. Um, and I'll read it from the ESV version. But afterwards, I also have a personal translation that I made for my paper. Uh-oh, watch out. All right, I we're hope ready. That can actually, oh, okay. So this is Acts 15, verse 19 to 21 in the ESV version first. And this is in context, James, the, the brother of Jesus, and we can we can have a whole entire podcast episode about what does that mean. Um, but James is giving his thoughts about the whole question about what to do with the Gentile Christians within the church. So verse 19, therefore, he says, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Now, it's, it's a little woody in the ESV. And so if you'll further entertain me, this is my personal translation that I had to do for my paper. Which you will be offering Again, for the low, low price of what? Free. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, we're ready. It'll be absolutely free. All right, so uh, the personal translation that I did. Therefore, truly I judge to not trouble them who are returning to God from the nations, but to inform them to abstain from the pollution of idols and sexual immorality and the strangled and the blood. Mm. For Moses, who is being read aloud, has those proclaiming him since ancient generations in every single city in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Mike, I would buy that translation. And I, I, I appreciate that, John. It's so, <laughs> so what, what the heck is going on, right? Yeah. Like, what is James talking about in this? So a few things that, you know, folks need to understand. This was a really big question. And I think a lot of times we as, you know, modern readers, we read this and not, we don't come away with realizing that this was a very pivotal moment in the church. It was answering the question, can a person be a Gentile and still be a Gentile, but be a follower of Christ? Like, do they do, do like the questions that would come would be, do they have to get circumcised? Do they have to follow the same diet that we do? Do they have to celebrate the same cel the festivals and celebrations that we we follow? Do they essentially have to become Jewish before they can become Christian? And so what's so interesting, right, about this whole entire event is that you have this whole entire council. This could be essentially the first ecumenical council that is recorded. Like this is where all the leaders of the church, including the apostles, including James, are all discussing this question, what do we do with the Gentiles? And so James gives this conclusion, and he says there are four things that us Gentile Christians need to stay away from. And this has been a lively debate in the church for centuries, and no one has been able to come to a hard, hard conclusion about what do these four things ultimately mean? And so that I say as a preference that I may have my personal conclusion. I think it's right. But at the same time, I recognize, you know, this is the reason why this is there is this debate. Everyone is still arguing about, well, is this still applicable or not? And if it is applicable, what do we do with it? So I don't know. Do you have any questions uh, for me, John? Before no, I, I'm just I getting excited because I have I, I I've grown up and I have heard radically different thoughts on this, and I come from kind of a legalistic background uh, where you know we were all about rules, buddy. Like we liked them, 
And if there wasn't a rule about it, we would come up with one ourselves. And, uh, and so okay. part, of, part of what is exciting to me about being able to do podcasts and, and talk to people like you is, is just the enjoyment of spending time in the Scripture. And that is, you know, what I want you to do and what I know you're going to do is just walk me through what you see here. Teach us. And then the community is going to think about it. And we're going to pour over our scriptures. And I'm just looking forward to where this goes. Okay. I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I will say, right, especially those of us who come from a Protestant kind of background, evangelical even. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've realized over the years, especially going to, to seminary and being like the school I was at was not of any particular denomination. And so it was open to any and every Orthodox following denomination. Mm-hmm. You know, anyone that was following like Orthodox evangelical core beliefs, you were welcome to the school. And so it, it, it exposed me to these different kind of vantage points and different perspectives on how to kind of interpret these things. And so that you know, I'm coming. From, I'm laying a little bit of my theological cards there, right? Um, I I recognize that from the background that I came from, that legalisticness is a temptation, right? It, it is something that is there, and something that, that, that often at times us as Protestants we have a tradition almost of guarding against anything that might say you got to do this. Well, and that's really you where it came from. I, I mean, the guys that I was running with, I mean, they they love Jesus. They do. Uh, and it it was almost not to say fear based, but like the more you read the Bible, you shouldn't be afraid of what it says. And so, if it says something yeah. that doesn't square up with what I think, like I need to change my thoughts, not try to find a way to justify what I already think. So, when someone is is exactly. is handling a text like this, where I know, like, okay, this could be a hot button issue, like I just like make popcorn. I'm like, all right, boys, let's go. This is gonna be fun, even if I don't. Come away agreeing with everybody. I am going to have to step up my explanation of what I think, and that's good for me. Mm-hmm. So I I think okay. no one should be scared of this at all. Love on your Bible, and if people got questions, then uh, we'd love to talk about them. So they can they can send those in, and I have Mike's number now, so he will be harassed at all hours of the day. <laughs> hmm. Now I'm wondering if that was a good idea. Yeah, it was totally not a good idea, but that is okay. Expect a flurry of memes in your near future. Oh my! So, <laughs> so let me let me just briefly. I I, I don't want to go into a history lesson on this, but I will just simply say there are six main major interpretations of this passage alone, and. Probably the more popular one, especially of the teacher that you and I were alluding to earlier, um, the inter- that interpretation is normally called the table fellowship interpretation, mm-hmm. meaning that, oh, what James is really talking about here is let's make sure that Gentile Christians don't eat certain foods when they're around their fellow Jewish Christian friends. And also, you know, stay away from some of that weird immorality stuff, the sexual immorality stuff, and then you'll be good. And and, and so it, it's seen as a way to interpret as about food, primarily about food. And funny enough, 
this was basically the interpretation of St. Augustine mm -hmm. in one of his letters. He had written to you know, one of his students, and he brought up this whole entire moment from Acts 15. And you know, if you entertain me here for a moment, I'm just going to read a little bit of what Augustine says here. But since the close of that period, during which the two walls of the circumcision and the uncircumcision, although united in the cornerstone, still retain some distinctive peculiarities. And now that the church has become so entirely Gentile that none who are outwardly Israelites are to be found in it, no Christian feels bound to abstain from thrushes or small birds because their blood has not been poured out or from hares because they are killed by a stroke on the neck without shedding their blood. And so he goes on and basically concludes that the words in Acts 15, 19 to 21, no longer applies to Gentile Christians or to the church in general. And the reasoning behind his thinking was because, well, we don't have any more Jewish Christians in the church anymore. And so because that's not the case anymore, we don't have to worry about this anymore now. And that to me is a very sad kind of interpretation if you think about it. Yeah, I was just thinking that, that. I was like, I mean, you hate to disagree with Augustine because he's Augustine, but how depressing is that? It is depressing. And and, and also just, uh, it, 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 it just, it's just sort of like, oh, well, since we don't have any, like, thankfully, we don't have any more Jewish Christians, which is just a ridiculous thing to almost say. It's so, but that was kind of like, I think, one of the first examples of this table fellowship idea that has come back into kind of vogue. Also, Bible how bad is it that he was like, you know what, now we can eat thrushes. I'm going to submit bacon as, you know, a possible alternative to thrushes, <laughs> like... I don't know why that was his go-to, like, thank goodness we can now eat thrush. But go ahead. I'm sorry. This is a side note. No, I mean, I have no idea what a thrush tastes like, so I can't, I can't comment. <laughs> Me neither, but chickens seem to be bigger versions of that. So anyway, go ahead. Yeah, that is true. So, so let me just put it out there. I don't think it's talking about table fellowship, right? Because I think there's something that's a little bit more going on here. Well, I will kind of note, because I know Dr. Heiser has done like a podcast series on the book of Acts, and I would recommend anyone and everyone to go and check out that series. It is really good. I will say, however, I came to a different conclusion than he did about Acts 15. Mm. And ironically, that conclusion was influenced by one of his closest friends, <laughs> Ben Witherington. And so I think... I wish there was a chance that Mike and I could have had a deeper discussion about this or even just to see Mike and Ben Witherington just kind of talking about this passage because I think it would have been amazing. But I agree. case. But this 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 is where this is where I'm landing here. And and so I to just to kind of simplify things a little bit. A few cute key things I want to mention about this passage. Okay. We have James who is speaking mm -hmm. at the very end, right? I think one of the things we have to remember about the scriptures is this is not like a beat reporter who is 
in the room and recording every line of dialogue. This is not a court transcript. Right. This is Luke giving a summary of a major event, the Jerusalem Council. And so he is ordering and putting the details in a way to help us follow his line of thinking. And so when James is the last one to speak, because you know it's not Peter who concludes this council. It's not Paul or Barnabas that concludes this council. It's James. That indicates that James has a level of prominence here. He, he's the one that's given the chance to have the last word. And his last word basically becomes the very thing that the church council will write to all of the churches. And they'll repeat James's words two more times just for good measure. And so we have to recognize that there is something very deliberately happening here with James. He is the last one speaking. And even the way that he is talking, he's using a deliberate rhetoric technique right and one of the ways we know that he's doing that is that he is bringing up a past event as his explanation for what should happen in the future and what they need to decide now and that past event was from amos 9 verses 11 to 13. and the strange thing is most people unless they really go back to like their Old Testament and check out the version in the Old Testament in like the NIV or the ESV, mm-hmm. they may not realize that James is actually quoting the Septuagint version of Amos 9 verses 11 to 13. Everybody and for out the audience, there, make a note. We need to read Amos more. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so, so for, for the audience's sake, just so they can see the difference, the major key difference is in verse 12. So I'll read from here to NIV first. And will rebuild as it is used to be, so that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. In the Septuagint English version, from Lexham, verse 12 reads instead, and I will rebuild it just as the days of the age, so that the remnant of the people and all the nations upon whom my name was invoked upon will search for me, Mm. says the Lord who is making these things. The key difference for folks who may not understand what's the difference between the Septuagint version and the Masoretic version that's found in English translations like the NIV is that in the Septuagint, the translator of the Septuagint read the letters that we would read as Edom in our English Bibles. And because Hebrew did not necessarily have the vowel markings, mm-hmm. the consonants for Edom are the same consonants that make up the word Adam. Oh, snap. Okay. And so that, so that is the difference, that it's just a, 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 a vowel change can make the difference between, it, are you talking about the nation of Edom, or are you talking about 
Adam, thus also mankind or humanity. And that would make sense then of that next line of, of all the nations, plural, who are called by my name. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, and James is purposely using that. He's using the, the Septuagint version. He's using at least a paraphrase of the Septuagint version. If anything, he's using a translation that is purposely saying that the word that we would think is Edom, it's going for the translation of Adam or humanity or, or mankind. Mm. And so that's why what he says right before he gives his list of prohibitions, he's bringing up this example. Hey, guys, you remember from Amos 9, right? This whole entire thing about the remnant of the people. Like, what in the world? Like, yeah. he, he, like, he's bringing up something that to him at that moment is indicating this is not just our people, the Jewish nation. Sorry about all people, the, like all humanity, Adam. And so, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thought. There is a way you can, you can reconcile those two together. And, you know, we don't have time to go through all that. But it's just a very cool moment to realize that the translator of the Septuagint is seeing these consonants and he goes for a decision of, I think, Amos is talking about humanity. Hmm. And, and, and in the Greek, he uses the word anthropos. So it's basically, he's making it very clear. He's talking about humanity, men. Right. He's talking about people. And so that is one big thing that informs then, like, what is then James going to talk about regarding these prohibitions? Well, it, right? makes to saying, it makes total sense. Because yeah, I, I read that, and I've got a little footnote off to the side here. Go read Amos. And you read that, and you're like, okay, I see where that came from. But it is kind of a random quote to turn a thought about Edom. Like, why was James thinking about that? Other than maybe the Holy Spirit was prompting him. But but that makes a lot of sense in my mind, what you're saying. It, it, it makes it right on Cause, top Because Because one of the things that, you know, sometimes we, we have to remember is that during this time period known as the Second Temple, right, there's all of these, you know, there are some who have been able to read the, the Hebraic, you know, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. Some have been able to hear the Aramaic version. Some have been able to hear, essentially, the Greek version. And in reality, the Greek version is probably was the most prominent one because right. Jews are everywhere, and not all of them could speak Hebrew anymore. Mm. Most likely, they were the common language that they could at least still collectively be able to communicate with one another was Greek. And well, that was a reason why yeah. even earlier in the book of Acts, there was that whole entire thing of Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews and about the whole widows situation. Right, right, right. And everybody was speaking Greek at the time. Like that was that was kind of the lingua franca of everybody. That coined common yeah. Greek. It was the, the business language. It was the business language. Even even if you couldn't write in Greek, like knowing core phrases knowing how to have you know a simple dialogue of being able to exchange money was an important enough thing for people to actually learn some of this stuff mm. it, it was just out there and i think that's just something that we oftentimes don't realize is that they were living in a world that was just saturated with different languages and the ways for you to survive and make a living oftentimes requires you have to learn a language even if it's just phrases so that you can actually eke out a living. 
And that's pretty much almost, I would say, almost a parallel in today's world, where my parents are immigrants from originally Hong Kong. And I was born here, so I could speak English perfectly just fine, mm -hmm. even with a Boston accent, apparently. <laughs> and It's there, but I wasn't my be parents, rude or anything. Well, you know, it is the best accent out there, but you know, it, it is just there. <laughs> I, I just have to say it. It's, you know, sometimes I realize, you know, even in my mind, I, I, I am hearing myself say words like "smart," even though there's no reason for me to. <laughs> just but to I, remind I, I just, everybody, I am from Boston, so recognize. <laughs> okay, I like it. Yeah, but it is just there. But I mean, it, it's just a, an experience that I have seen. Even living in amongst the, an ethnic community, you know, of Chinese immigrants, where parents for the parents and relatives or other friends, for the most part, who cannot speak fluent English, yet they can carry basic conversations or at least carry very short responses because you just had to. You just had to learn how to say certain phrases in English in order to just get by, mm -hmm. and so. Anyways, that's kind of what is going on here, is that we shouldn't be surprised that James is actually using the Septuagint. He's quoting from the Septuagint. Or at the very least, he's even on the spot making a translation in his mind of what the Hebrew says and making the decision. I think this is actually Adam. It could be that too. Mm -hmm. But I think personally he's using the Septuagint. It, it's, it's so close to it. But well, even if it's Edom, anyways, like Edom can sometimes be uh, a stand-in for for Gentile nations. Like he's exactly the, like the imagery there, like doesn't change. Even even I know some people really get really hung up on on this kind of thing, but I'm gonna kind of soothe them and say the Bible. Like you read that text, and it's pretty clear anyway. God isn't saying Edom's okay. Like he's he's calling people to repent. And to to act in a way which is upright and honest and and in fellowship with him. So don't don't get hung up on that, but embrace it and just think about it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely agree. All right, so let's just get go right into what these four prohibitions are. Right, they're abstain from the pollution of idols, and and that word pollution is a very interesting little little detail that James adds in. The second one is sexual immorality. You got in my translation. I just I just went for it, just as as just hard woody as you can. Of just like it's just so wooden, it's just so blocky, mm -hmm. strangled things. <laughs> yeah, just just things that have been strangled. And then the fourth one, blood things, things that just blood, just blood. And for the longest time, right from folks like Augustine who assume. Oh, this is all about food. But then you hit the obstacle. But what what's going on with the whole entire section of morality thing? Hmm. No, that's right? true. Or or you got or some folks will say, well, yeah, and and historically that's actually what happened with the texts, with all the different manuscripts that go out. When you get to different regions where the text is, there were actually some texts like families where they decided, you know, that 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 strangle thing is really weird. Let's let's kind of not copy that part, and so then the four prohibitions is become three. 
because they, they want to make it harmonized and they want to make it a little bit make more sense. So they'll just say, well, the things we, ha- we Gentiles have to abstain from is, you know, food, basically sacrifice to idols or, you know, blood things and the sexual morality bit. Because we don't know what to do with the strangle thing. Like, that's just weird. Yeah. Or, or, or some other places, they'll just like, you know, this is this is something else. This is about like, oh, like the the about ethics and that blood things is actually about murder. And, yeah. and the strangle thing is also about murder. Okay. But then like, well, what do you do with the sexual yeah. morality? Again, like and what do you do with the pollution of idols? Right. So what do you so, do? So also, you, yeah, what do you do with them? And, and, and that's basically where everyone always keeps butting their heads in all these different interpretations. Hmm. Now, the, the, where, the place that I landed ultimately, and the reason why it really got at me, was in Ben Whittington's Acts commentary. He asked the simple question, is there anything that was going on during that time period where all four of these things are happening at the same time at an event or a location mm. that some, like he was thinking, can, can we find a, like some unifying idea where all four of these things are happening at the same time and not treat these prohibitions as though they're separate items, right. but that they're actually all talking about the same thing. And so where he landed on and where essentially I, I was convinced after looking at the stuff that he was citing and his own footnotes, I landed on the avoidance of pagan idolatry practices. Hmm. Yeah, I was just, I, I just got back from Israel. I know you're heading there in a couple of days, but I, I'm just visualizing Caesarea Philippi the whole time I'm reading this. Like, mm. and they were kind of talking about the stuff that was going on there. And it reads real similar to what James is talking about. Yeah. So if 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 you if your listeners will will let me kind of go into a little bit more about this because if it sounds weird, I know it sounds weird, but it is a very interesting thing just to contemplate. Maybe I'm wrong, but I do think that these prohibitions are talking about ultimately of worship. It's about worship Hmm. and so the from the pollution of idols i i mentioned in my paper i actually just went for it saying that this reveals decidedly the second temple jewish period's perspective that gentiles were unclean because of the assumed regular association with idols by that time, well, and it's a pretty good assumption. Jude- like every part of a gentile, especially a Roman, like their whole life revolved around this kind of stuff. You opened a new business; and, and- it involved idolatry. You went on a journey; it involved idolatry. I mean, it's it's not just made up out of nowhere. Like that's that's a solid critique. Yeah, and, and and it's not just the big idols, right? It's not like the big guys like Artemis or Zeus or whoever. It can also just come down to the very small, little, tiny pocket idols mm-hmm. that they were worshiping or they were using to represent, you know, past family members. Mm-hmm. And so it was just so baked into the life of Greco-Roman culture. They didn't think anything about it. Mm-hmm. But for a, a, a Jewish nation that came back from exile and they were so convinced 
that the reason they were exiled was because of idolatry. That that was one of the major reasons why they were sent off into into exile into Babylon. They were so ghastly afraid of it. And 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 things also with the Sabbath, but it all had it, again connections back to, well, you know, we were worshiping other gods as well, and so they were really concerned about idolatry. And it's a weird thing when you think about it. When you look at how the Israelites interacted with Gentile people before the exile to Babylon, it didn't seem like they were completely like up here, like like get away from me kind of thing. Right? We have Solomon welcoming Gentiles into his court. We have you know, Nate, you know, the, the famous story that Mike always likes to bring up about the Syrian captain who comes because he has leprosy and he's asking, like, can you please heal me? Mm-hmm. And the prophet tells him, go wash yourself in the Jordan. He finally does it after protesting. And then he asks the prophet after he's been healed, can I please take some of this dirt with me? Because I want this dirt so that I can then pray on this dirt and talk to the real God of the world. Cause now I realize your God is the real God. He's the one that actually healed me. Right? Like there was no problem with a Gentile being around Jewish folks. There was no problem with them coming into the land. They had no issues with them, but something changed in their perspective and their attitude and their assumptions about Gentiles by the second temple period. And that something let me just read from this interesting research from this professor. This is actually from a Jewish scholar. His last name is Alan, A-L-O-N. And it was, it was, a, it was just such a kind of mind-blowing thing once I actually looked at it, because the guy was basically describing a, a perspective about Gentiles that just seems so foreign to us today. Hmm. And let me just, yep, here it is. And if listeners are are interested in finding, finding this material, the title of the work is called Jews, Judaism, and the Classical World, Studies in Jewish History in the Times of the Second Temple and Talmud. He says this. Sounds like riveting reading. Oh, it, it is. It was so riveting. But I believe it. It's a key part here. He mentions the impurity of non-Jews current among the nation a long time before the destruction of the temple. It was nevertheless, it was rooted in an ancient tradition and it consolidated in the course of time and became in many respects a practical law which regards Gentiles as impure is embedded in this tradition that ascribes Levitical uncleansedness to the idol itself and to its attendance. The defilement of non-Jews is therefore an extension of the uncleanness of the idol itself, incorporating its worshipers. So layman's terms, right? This guy is basically saying from his research of the Second Temple period that it was common thought amongst a lot of Jewish people that Gentiles are just unclean, not because they were born unclean, not because they're Gentiles and that's why just by default we're unclean. It was because 
you guys are most likely worshiping or you have idols within your proximity, within your own homes, within your own businesses. And those idols themselves are so unclean. They're emanating this impurity that defiles you guys. So that's, we can't get wheels you. spinning here. So, and, and, and this, okay. think about this, right? Yeah. Remember, remember the moment when Peter is praying and God, you know, shows the hunter tarp of all these animals and he tells them go and kill and eat. And, you know, like surely Lord, I won't, I don't, I won't eat un, in, impure, unclean things. Right. Sure. And he finally agrees to go to visit the centurion's home. He actually goes into the centurion's home. This Roman centurion. And afterwards, after, you know, this family actually, you know, the spirit comes, they, they, they leave, the spirit comes, they, they start speaking tongues, all that crazy stuff. And he's then trying to explain what the heck happened to his fellow Jewish Christian friends. And it's almost you can get the sense of like, they're wondering, why did you go into that guy's home? Right. And like, what, what, what is, I always wonder, what, what was underlying that? Like, why were they so concerned and why did Peter feel the need to strongly defend and justify himself before them about why he went into that home? And I think that this has to do with that just culturally, they just had this assumption that us Gentiles had some sort of idol in the house. And just by the fact that it is there makes us defiled mm. and if a jewish person went into that home they would be exposing themselves to essentially the same contagion man so we're studying territorial spirits right now and you are messing with my yeah. head because it adds so much depth to so many of the stories and then also when you think I, about like god seems to single out like moving into territories like into uh dagon's temple or, or into Baal. Like, he he isn't okay with them being there. He, he moves them out. It's like God overcomes these powers. And even, like, the the well, idea yeah. of, like, exorcism that the disciples were, were engaged on, it's kind of the same thing. Not of being afraid of anything, but of this is the message of Christ overcoming something that is defiling. Not to be afraid that they would be defiled, but to bring salvation and cleansing into an unclean space is is one of the cool things about Jesus. It's like the uh, the cleansing law is running backwards. You know, you don't become unclean because you touch someone with leprosy. That leper becomes clean because he touched Jesus kind of a thing. Yeah, it's like the, it's the, the whole entire reversal that Jesus is doing as he is there, right? That's like one of the beautiful things about what he was doing and what he was working ultimately was showing hey, the kingdom of heaven is starting to break through, right? This is the whole part of the whole idea of the already and not yet. And, and that he's giving us a sample and a taste of like, in the kingdom, there is no leprosy. In the kingdom, there is no blindness. In the kingdom, there is none of this kind of sickness. This, this possession that you have, this is not going to be normal. And, and so that, that's just something that's, it's so interesting that James is bringing up this idea of the pollution of idols and that we now in our modern day, we're not thinking that the idols, especially temple idols, 
are emanating some sort of uncleanness. Like we don't even think that they, we think they're just like statues of stone or wood and metal mm -hmm. and that there's nothing that's emanating from them. And yet from a cultural perspective, if, if this, you know, Dr. Allen is right. And I think he is at least the mental space for a lot of Jews of that time, they're thinking, well, these Gentiles who say they're Christians, how do we know? Like what if their home still has an idol? What if they're still going to the temple and, and they're being in the presence of an idol? So then they're polluted. So how can we be in fellowship with them? Mm. And so you've got that kind of thing that's going on in their minds. Yeah, it, as it well. runs my mind so straight James, to Corinthians. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, oh, actually, that, that was actually the next place I was going to go. Oh, yes, that, I'm on point. You know, yeah, the, the, Paul, Paul brings up the whole entire thing, right, about the whole entire thing about food sacrifice to idols. And, and if people really actually took a look at the nuance of it, they may notice, it's like, wait a minute, he says one thing in Corinthians 8, and then he says another thing in 1 Corinthians 10. Right. And, and it sounds a little confusing. And, and I think kind of the key thing that folks, you know, if they get a chance to really take a deep dive into it, you may hopefully notice is that the kind of idols that Paul is talking about and ate the food sacrificed to them, like that can be a stumbling block to the weak, but it isn't necessarily something that, hey, if you are a Christian and you know, hey, that idol, that little thing that we just like, hey, thank you, you know, for giving us this food isn't real at all. You can go ahead and eat it. But if you're in the presence of someone who does think it's real, well, you know, abstain. Don't do that. But when he gets to 10, it's like, don't eat it. Don't eat, this, don't eat that food sacrificed. And the difference is, seems to be that he's talking about food that was sacrificed in the local food market and food that was sacrificed actually in the temples. Yeah, that's been my conclusion as well. I want to ask you, do you think that those, do you think they were right to assume that because the Gentiles were possessing idols and praying to the idols that they were, uh, I don't know, kind of following your, your like infected with the presence of the idol? I think it, it's like, you know, cultural assumptions are, it, it oftentimes can be like a blind spot, right? We, we don't even realize that we're carrying it. And so I, I personally think that what James is bringing up is that he's addressing really this unspoken elephant in the room. Mm -hmm. He's bringing up the fact that you know, a lot of the Jewish Christians in that council, especially the, the Judaizing ones, the, the ones who were former Pharisees themselves, but who actually became followers of Jesus, that they unknowingly were allowing a particular assumption to drive them to a particular conclusion about the Gentile Christians. Mm -hmm. I and mean, so even to the point James, where like, it becomes a massive communion issue in just a couple pages. Yeah. Yeah. And so he, you know, James is hitting that square on of like, all right, let's, let's just make it very clear, right? They have to abstain from the pollution of idols. Let's just get that out into the open. Let's just expose that, that we're all feeling that we're all thinking that maybe we're wrongly assuming that, but let's just make it clear. Break away from a fellowship with idols. 
if if you know and, and whatever that may mean and i and for me like i'm coming from a a background from a chinese heritage church mm-hmm. where i would hear stories of families who were you know they, you know they were maybe confucius or buddhist or just agnostic but they they had ancestral worship practices and they become christians they become followers of jesus and some of these stories involve them going to these very little miniature altars that they have made of their family members mm. and having the need and the drive to destroy it that you know the pastor would come and pray and help them take out the the, the miniature altars take out the candles take out the incense to even put away the pictures that do not put them up for display so that you can bow before them anymore that you're finally putting them away yeah that it was a removal of those idols like i come from that kind of background so when i hear this from james there's a little bit of that running in my in the back of my mind well i think that, that puts you that, closer to what james's world was than the completely secular westerner is able to to grab this because that is you know that there's there there's similarities here for the western yeah. skeptic like we have to be convinced that anything is real whereas a, a group of people who are who are still acknowledging their ancestors in a way that that was very common all, all throughout most of human history like we're, we're the odd man out here not the norm is what i'm trying to say and i think i think mm-hmm. you're spot on here So, you know, anyways, like to, to move on forward, right? The, the next couple of things, the, the next part is the sexual immorality. And I won't go into the, the whole entire deep dive in this, but the interesting good, thing we're family here, friendly here. Yeah. The interesting thing is, is that the Greek word behind sexual immorality, for, for some scholars, they think, oh, Luke is just talking about adultery because this word in general in in normal greco-roman culture that was a common word that was used to describe adultery not not just you know any particular type of you know sexual act that was not in the confines of a marriage but you know when you do these kind of papers you have to actually go into like well like how did the writer of this gospel or in this case luke the writer of Acts and of Luke, like how did he use this word? And did he just use this word ever to just describe adultery? And funny enough, he doesn't. Hmm. The other gospel writers do, Matthew and Mark do, right? And and, you, and one could attribute that to the fact that, you know, if we if we if Matthew and Mark are the writers like we think they are, some of us do, then. They're not necessarily very well versed in the, the exact wording for adultery in Greek. They're just using a general word that just seems like a catch-all that they can just use to describe adultery. But when you get to the same parallel passage where Jesus is talking about adultery, Luke does not use that word. He uses a Greek word that is even more specific that there is no doubt that Luke is actually talking about adultery, you know, of, of, of a husband being unfaithful to his wife. Right. And so he is using instead now this word from what it appears 
in a general sense of covering the whole entire gambit of range of what we would probably call you know sexual sin. And so there is something that happens with this word, and this word does get a connection to idolatry by Paul in First Thessalonians chapter four. And, and so there is something that is going on that this word has this kind of interesting history in connection to idol and pagan worship. Not just the stuff that people would talk about that happens inside the temples, right? With the, the special folks that were, uh, their job was to help you reach the gods through special things, the special ways. But there's something that this word itself has a connection to idol worship. Well, and the idea of temple prostitution shouldn't be new to, well, at least I would hope it wouldn't be new to readers of the New Testament. Like, that was happening. That was common. Mm-hmm. And, and, and just even in general, that it was that's something that was normally also kind of connected to the idea of getting closer to the gods. And yeah, so, so my mind is running back to the, the Finhas story. We've been reading about like Bela Peor and that and that kind of thing. Like when the Moabites mm-hmm. uh, come in and yes. are like they're like that's that's all connected to the worship of the god Baal. And like yeah. again, for somebody living in our culture, we're just going to be inclined to be like, yeah. So don't be sleeping around when there's there's really a lot of cultural uh, information that's that's we're missing out on by by not studying the background. Yeah. And man, my gosh, this brings up like some of my my old Testament intro course where we we just we dived into a little bit of what was going on during the moment when Moses came down from from Sinai with the tablets and finds what's happening with the Israelite camp. Um, there, you know, there's a debate on how should we translate some of that some of those portions. Like, were they just simply were they partying, or were they doing something more? Yeah, they rose up and, to play. You know, yeah, and so it goes back and forth, right? And there are good arguments on either side, but it does just make you wonder, right? At the very least, you're just supposed to wonder. <laughs> and so there's um th- that that's kind of where I'm landing is that the word here for sexual morality, there is a connection that's going on with worship as well that's happening here. So I'm and now finally you. we get to the Oh, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. And so finally, get to the third and fourth prohibition. I'll just put these two together because they're just odd, right? From the strangled and the blood. And this is where, again, being exposed to Mike's content helped me so much. Because the whole entire thing about the strangled, if you ever take a look at, you know, one of Mike's favorite books, you know, you, you get to like the whole entire demons, DDT, I think the DDD, that's the, the kind of the shorthand to how people would talk about it. There's reference to this special ritual called the, the opening the mouth ritual. Right. Where this idol, you would have this little idol and you would have this little kind of lever thing that you would put on the idol's mouth. They pretend to open its mouth so that it can take in the spirit of, of the God that you're worshiping. And so what's interesting is that the strangled might be a reference to the fact that when you're sacrificing animals to your favorite God, well, how is that God supposed to eat the life force or to enjoy the life of this animal? 
one of the practices and one of the ways to do that is to lie the animal in front of the idol and to then strangle it. Mm. Creepy. So that its very last breath, yes, it is creepy. Absolutely creepy. But that its last breath, its last exhales would go towards the idol. And it's kind of funny, right? Because that, that whole entire phrase itself is what threw nope, off so nope, many Bible funny. interpreters for Definitely years. Definitely creepy. Like, the word is creepy. It is creepy. But and, and, and if you go into this so with a preconceived time. idea that this is about food, you end up in Weirdville yeah. here. But it... Yes. Like, it, what you're saying makes a ton of sense to me. So this... Because it connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. And not seeing them as two separate documents that are about God but as extensions of the worship of the Lord. Like this, yeah. and, and that's what Dr. Heiser did for me a ton, was really just fill in so many blanks. I didn't know. I had no idea. And so it, it sparked in me a desire to, to go read and find out about these ancient practices and cultures. But knowing that, I don't think anyone should be reading this and thinking, no, it's just about the way you prep your food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and, 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 so know, what about the, the blood that, that. part? Like you, you use the phrase and, and the thing that is from blood, or how did you say that in your translation? The, 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 like the way that I, I translated it as uh, just to kind of highlight the, the prohibitions and the strangled and the blood. The just blood. That. Okay. And the blood. Now, the, the, there is also another thing of during that time of the of the worship within the temples. When it came to the blood, again, this goes into the into the creepy area. The priests would taste the blood of the animal to make sure is this a good animal for sacrifice. <laughs> Did they really? They tasted it. Yeah, yeah. And 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 here's the weirder thing, right? As I was writing this paper, I I actually stumbled upon. I stumbled upon this document that told of early missionaries from the church that went into, you know, into what we would now call the Great Britain area. And they described, you know, some of the practices and, and the kind of pagan worship practices that they had encountered of like, you know, this is the challenge that we're meeting of evangelizing and, and sharing the gospel to these people. They are doing some of this stuff. And one of the things that was recorded in this document um, from Reverend H.D.M. Spence in a book called The Church of England, A History for the People, was that they had found that there was a group of folks who were actually doing that very practice of tasting the blood of their sacrifices before they were fully sacrificed. That's like vampire in stuff. Order, like, it, it was just so that they could make sure, like, is this a good enough does this sacrifice? Is, is this gift, vintage right? up to par with what the God is expecting? I, I, I yeah. don't know, man. And, 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 it's weird, and I like it in a gross way, but I do. The the way I wrote it in the paper, I see. I wasn't sure how my professor would respond to this. She she didn't say anything wrong about it. <laughs> Apparently, it got her interest too, and, and it was the use of blood, especially tasting it to check quality. Or before presenting it to an idol, was, for example, still a practice that missionaries had to confront 
in the expeditions into Great Britain. Wow. And then thus, I so this isn't happened. talking about like how rare my steak is. No. This this ultimately again. I feel a lot better Russia. because I like a rare steak, and I'm. Turns out I'm not sinning. I'm personally a medium rare guy, but oh, okay, okay, <laughs> that's all right. I can convert you later. Hey, I I, I love beef tartare. So oh, you know, so that that's that's. I believe that's called hamburger meat for everyone out there who's not sure what beef tartare is. <laughs> uh, but it, it's nice and clean, <laughs> and 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 salted, and really tasty. No, man, I'm. But anyhow, yeah. So she didn't react to that at all. She was like, "Yeah, you know." That no. Uh, yeah, and so you know, it was. I I didn't know how my professor in the end would react to this paper, and she loved it. She actually gave me a chance to talk about it in class. And, and, and tell folks like kind of what I had stumbled upon, right? Because this interpretation of the idol worship is one out of two that I personally think is the, are the strongest to understand this. And I personally have landed on this because it's such a unifying interpretation. It takes all four of these prohibitions and it makes sense out of the whole thing. They're not treated as little separate silos. They're all leading into... Okay, so how do us Jewish folks and now Jewish Christians, how do we particularly think or assume is going on in the lives of the Gentiles? Right. Here it is. And, and These this four is, things. It just it opens it wide open. Of all, all of a sudden it's like, oh, if this is what you guys are thinking or assuming, whether it's right or wrong. But they're assuming this is happening because it was happening to a degree. It was out there. And so if we don't know where you're coming from as a Gentile Christian, we don't know what your family background is. We don't know where, what, where, what area, what province you're from. What were you like before? Where are the, where are the things I'm just going to immediately assume and think of? And so James, for the sake of peace within the church, Gentiles who are coming to the Lord, who's actually fulfilling the prophecy of Amos 9, here are these four things. You ultimately gotta break away and make a clean cut mm. from anything that has an association no, to idol preaching. and pagan worship. I like it. Can I get an amen out there? Somebody give it to me. Come on. I think that's exactly it, man. This is about Jesus being the God of gods. There's no room for holding on to the others. He is the the one who made us and the one to whom we owe our worship. This makes a ton of sense to me, but. I'm also excited about digging into this for the next week, week and a half. Maybe longer. Depends on if I order all those books or just one. But one of them is getting ordered. But, yeah. Shout out to my wife. This is happening. So, so anyhow, I, I hope this was just like at least thought-provoking, right? I No, man. You're, you're, I think, this is great. You're on point. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I wish is that I had this chance to just be able to present some of this, like, some of this to, to Mike, because I think he would have, one, I think he would have enjoyed finding out. I was like, whoa, you got some of this, like, some of this stuff from Ben. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I would I would have loved to have just seen how they would have interacted with this. Because well, on a positive note, he knows the answer now. And he does. And uh, when you get up there, you can be like, dude, I was thinking about this. And he'll be like, yeah, I know. Maybe, maybe he'll have a different thought, but who knows? I, um, 
I would like to read uh, his thoughts on the Unseen Realm now, for sure. Like, I know that he's got just, it's hard to lose somebody that you look up to as a mentor and a, someone that you love, but um, he did tremendous work here, and my life is much richer because I've come across his writings. And my life is better because of you, Mike, mm -hmm. and what you're doing now over there at Awakenings and uh, running the, uh, um, or moderating, or admin, I'm not sure who you are. What's your official rank there on the Facebook page? Master and Commander, Grand Poobah, what are you? It, it, I, I, on on the DCW Facebook group, I'm just a simple admin. And and there are, there's six of us, you know, four admins, two mods, and oh, six, we all share the seventh. same duties. Sending bad I, messages uh, to have six. Well, I mean, we do have a seventh. Okay. Kind of silent member. So we do have a seventh. But, um, you know, he's there. He's good. The secret that admin. That makes me glad to know that I'm part of something with secrets. Not really. I just, <laughs> uh, it's not a very good secret if you're telling everybody about it, but that's okay. Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming on here and walking us through that. I uh, Do you mind if we harass you and we, we have you back on sometime? Sure. I, I would love to come back on just, just to talk about other things and just to shoot the breeze. Can can I maybe just read one last thing from from just this paper that I had written? Because sure. I closed it off. Because ultimately, to me, this the application to me. I mean, like like this is really cool knowledge and everything, but also, what does this mean? Like, how do we bridge the gap from that time to our modern time? And like, does James' words, his prohibitions, do they have any relevance to us today? And so, I was I closed off with. The idolatry that modern Western society engages in may not take the forms of gold and silver statues, but the underlying desires for fame, power, wealth, and authority still appear in our treatment of celebrities, politicians, ideologies, careers, and dreams. The giving up of our bodies, our life breaths, and the spilling of both our blood and others to the idols that we believe can help us is still practiced in our society today. James reminds the church that pledging allegiance to our God is not troublesome. Nevertheless, one must be ready to abstain, to leave behind failed gods and idols who have shown that they cannot save and do not deserve our lives. Amen.